For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. After the wall is rebuilt, it's time for the Jewish people to celebrate. Here in chapter 9, however, feasting has turned to fasting as the people of God reflect on the sins of the past in order to never repeat them again. Now let's join Pastor Ross with the message entitled, A Prayer of Confession. Heavenly Father, as we we always do, we want to pause before we consider your God-breathed word. We recognize, Lord, that it, it is not the word of men, but you used men and dictated, and they wrote and spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so, Father, what we have uh, before us is living and active and sharp and can do work down deep uh, where we need it the most. And so we pray toward that end, Lord, that you'd have your way in our hearts and change us and encourage us, correct us by your living word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Did you hear the one about the four pastors who get together to hang out together? (laughs) Oh, I'm going to tell you if you haven't heard it. Uh, They get together, you know, they're just going to spend some time together. One of them says, hey, uh, folks come to us all the time, guys, with their uh, weaknesses and their sins, and they pour them out in confession to us. And I was just thinking, you know, that would be good for us to do with one another. You know, uh, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed, and that's a, that's a good thing. So uh, let's confess to each other here in this little time together. And so he said, I'll start. So he said, you know, sometimes I leave Bible study uh, for Sunday sermons up until the last minute, until Saturday night, and then I'm just going crazy, and I end up borrowing uh, too heavily from my sources, and I just feel every Sunday like I'm not feeding uh, the flock of God. And they all went, oh, that's bad. (laughs) Then the next guy says, okay, well... You know, I really struggle with pride because sometimes when God uses me, just my head gets all big and, you know, I walk around, I'm no good to anybody. I think I'm better than other people. And uh, I just feel the Holy Spirit just grieved when I'm like that. And they all went, oh, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. And then the third guy says, uh, you know, Sometimes when I see problem people coming my way, I just kind of avoid them and turn the other way. And everybody went, no way. Wow. That, you, man, you're a sinner. <laughs> and just terrible. And he said, just pray for me. Well, the fourth guy's sitting there, and he's really quiet. And he doesn't want to talk. And he's squirming, and he's looking real anxious. And they said, come on, man. We all got vulnerable. We shared our hearts. What's, what's your big sin? And he said, well, actually, it's gossiping, and I can hardly wait to get out of here. <laughs> I like that one. <clears throat> well, joking aside... Uh, confessing our sins and faults even to God or to anybody, for that matter, uh, is not an easy task, is it? It's humiliating. It's embarrassing. It's humbling and uh, puts us in a vulnerable place, depending on what we are, are actually confessing. Um, so even though it's not pleasant, it is so hugely important, uh, not only with our relationship with God, but with one another. What confession does is it kind of creates a turning point. It, it, it cuts ties with bad behavior. It, it opens the door for restoration and gives space for healing and correction and brings accountability. Uh, no wonder the psalmist said in the psalm we read this evening, uh, blessed, how happy are the people whose sins have been confessed and covered over and turned away from. So, you know, confession is not without effort, but it's certainly invaluable. And that is what chapter 9 of Nehemiah is all about. Israel confesses uh, their sins. And so um, 
We're going to start off here setting the stage for that national prayer of confession. It begins with verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the same month they had Thanksgiving, the Israelites gathered together, now fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those, uh, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord, the scrolls of the first five books in the Bible. Um, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord, their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shevaniah, Bunny. Now, that guy had a hard childhood. <laughs> Little bunny. I lost my place. Where's bunny go? Where'd the bunny hop to? There he is. Sherebiah, Bini, and Kanani. Now, if you're looking for baby names, Caitlin, right there, bunny. Bunny Reinman. <laughs> Maybe not. Okay, sorry. I digress as usual. They cried out with loud voices to, their, to the Lord their God. And the Levites, uh, mixed and matched here, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bini, Hashabiniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, oh, that's it. We stopped there, right? We just get down to the said part. All right, so a time to mourn. This is the stage and the platform because what comes after they said is the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter is a prayer of confession. And so setting the stage for a time to mourn. Now, uh, you know, King Solomon is the one who penned the words, not the 60s um, singing group, the birds, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. You know, to everything, turn, turn, turn. No? Oh, boy, everybody's old. <laughs> or no, everybody's young. That's the problem. All right, well, uh, listed in the ebbs and flows of life there in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and that's where that song was taken from, uh, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Um, and so... There's been a time of laughing and a time of rejoicing and dancing and celebrating and feasting because they had experience together, as we saw last chapter and just a few days earlier, uh, this celebration of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the Jewish Thanksgiving. Uh, they commemorated the time when God dwelt in a tent with them in their tents as they made their way to the promised land. And so uh, they, they had a lot to be ecstatic about. The wall of Jer Jerusalem has been rebuilt and is working. They have a functioning temple. I mean, life has come back to Jerusalem. They're back, 45,000 of them anyway. They're living in their homes, and the gates are opening and closing, and they're protected behind the walls. And uh, the Jewish people are celebrating, or they were, in, in this festival of Thanksgiving, as we saw in chapter 8. Now, in this very same month, it says in your text, that is their month of September, early October. It doesn't go as nicely in a Gregorian calendar as the Hebrew lunar calendar is kind of uh, half of one of our months and half of the other. So we have a little bit of September and a little bit of October, depending where the moon is. And I just throw that in for free. Now, moving on. Um, did you find it strange that suddenly now they're in sackcloth and they're mourning and they're grieving? But just a few days ago, maybe a week or so, uh, they were all dancing and rejoicing and it was just a wonderful uh, time. Well, I don't. I don't find it strange uh, because they've been spending hours and hours and hours in the word of God, rehearsing the goodness of God. But every time you read from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which is what they're reading from, and they read all week long, every single day, you had to read about God's faithfulness to them 
and then their rebellion. And these are their ancestors. And the seeds of those very sins are, are in their hearts too, and they identify. And they're still kind of reaping the consequences of those uh, sins of their fathers and grandfathers, uh, and they're just now being restored. So, of course, I think the work uh, of the Holy Spirit is this, and why it's suddenly gone from feasting to fasting. They don't want to go backwards. They don't want to go back to those miserable days. So Thanksgiving is over, and they're about to go back to life as usual, right? And so... They don't want it to happen again. And so there's a spirit of let's dedicate and renew before we go home. Let's have a renewal service, which is at the end of the chapter. Uh, They're going to renew their vows to God. Uh, But the reason they're crying and they're upset is because uh, God has done a work in their hearts because they've been reading the Bible and seeing the love of God and how much uh, they fall short, and they don't want that uh, to happen again. You know, you've heard the, the quote about history is really his story, right? And so you're going to get a, a Jewish Old Testament survey in the prayer of confession that's going to follow uh, because they, in their prayer, they recount all the places they went wrong and how God was loving and faithful in how they were ungrateful and uh, rebellious and turned away from him. So they just don't want to do that uh, ever again. So the ancient uh, Jewish protocols for humbling themselves as they approach God, uh, you see in your text there, they assemble with fasting. And all fasting was really was saying, God, this is serious. Uh, There's some things that are more important than food. We're so upset that we've lost our appetite. And instead of having lunch right now, we're seeking you. Uh, Secondly, you see that they wore sackcloth. And sackcloth, of course, most of you know, a kind of like burlap. You know, and so uh, kind of itchy material. So they, they said, now's not a time to be comfortable. We're upset about our sin. So now's not the time for our regular, ordinary comforts. Uh, we're going to make ourselves uncomfortable on the outside to show and to match our discomfort on the inside. And then the throwing the dust, it's really picking up some dirt and throwing it in the air and, and, and hoping and trying to get it to land on their heads. And the reason they would do this is to say, we feel filthy on the inside. We're acknowledging to you now outwardly the filth that's in our hearts that we readily recognize is is very evident to everybody. Look at me, I'm dirty. That's the idea, the Jewish idea of going full bore into uh, confession uh, and a humble approach uh, to the Most High God. So they separate in verse 2 from the foreigners. Why do they do that? This is an in-house thing. This is, the Jews are going to go uh, make a, a covenant with God and go through all of the Jewish history, and so it doesn't involve them. And so they uh, um, kind of consecrate themselves and say, hey, you guys, and, and believe me, that's a, a, a ceremony, and when you hear the prayer and you see what they're doing is something that the Gentiles would really be glad not to be a part of, right? So who wants to go to a party? Hey, come on, you know, put on some burlap, <laughs> get some dirt, <laughs> throw it in the air, and then no food, you know? Boy, that sounds like a lot of fun. The Gentiles are like, thank you, <laughs> And so verses 3 to 5, you see the Levites. And when you see Levites, you think pastors. Um, All the pastors are involved. And so two things are going on. And here's how it went down. Uh, A few hours in the word for teaching. And we saw in chapter 8 that they pause and do some explanation, kind of like Devo's, you know. And then also a quarter of the day, three hours, a few hours in worship and prayer. And so it's very much like a retreat like our retreats and conferences. We spend uh, a full day like that. Uh, I know the men's retreats uh, for Calvary Chapel, a lot of hours of back-to-back teaching. Sometimes six guys will get up like that back-to-back, and then there'll be a lot of worship and a lot of praying and public praying and sometimes breakout groups. So we get this from the Bible, and that's what's happening here. And so um, in the worship and prayer... 
part of it, it involved confessing their sins. So the biblical understanding of what the word confess means, there's two ideas biblically. One is to say this, it quite literally means to say the same thing as. In other words, to speak the truth, right? So whatever is true on the outside is true on the inside and vice versa, right? And so tell it like it is. And, and so there's a, the first meaning or sense biblically is that there, uh, it, it's not a negative connotation. It's to almost profess. So confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. So you're admitting the truth. Okay, you're Lord and I'm not. Okay, so that's a confession, uh, uh, and the negative connotation, the second biblical way of understanding confession uh, is the negative sense that we all think of when you think of, oh, he had to confess, and then we got it. You know, something bad went down, and he had to out himself, right? So that's what we see as confession uh, most often. And here, you're going to find out that it's a mix of both. The prayer is... I would say three quarters about the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God, confessing that. And, and really a small part, and this is a real takeaway, a small part is about them and their lameness and their problems and their depravity and weakness. The story, his story, is about his faithfulness. And the prayer really reflects that. Lord, we're a small part of it. You're great, you're faithful, you're kind. Let's list all of that out, all your attributes. And then there's us, you know. And uh, it's a, just a, a nice uh, balance. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And that is uh, Proverbs uh, 28 and verse 13. That's the understanding of the outing ourselves and finding uh, relief that way when we renounce. So it's one thing to confess because there's a gun at your head and you're like, okay, I did it. You know, that's not biblical confession. That's uh, something else. So, so the two senses here in the prayer, really, it's going to tell the truth about God's faithfulness and also going to tell the truth about their well-deserved chastisement over the years uh, for their rebellion. Uh, striking the balance between that in our interactions with God, it's important. Warren Wiersbe, one of my go-to guys, as you hear me every week, Here's a quote, the worshipers that day knew that they needed constant cleansing and renewal from the Lord. We must not major on self-examination to the extent that we start ignoring the Lord, but we must be honest in our dealings with him. Whenever you see sin or failure in your life, immediately tell him and seek forgiveness and keep looking to him. The more you look at yourself, the more discouraged you'll become. Focus on his perfection and not your imperfections. Now, you'll find this national prayer of confession, and it's really about the goodness of God more than the lameness of man, and that's encouraging. Okay, here we go. Let's dive into the prayer, okay? Uh, 5B to 7, we'll just get a start here, or to 8. Uh, Stand up and praise the Lord. They're praying. They said, stand up and praise the Lord, your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and that, all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, and every other sites there are. You have kept your promise because uh, you are righteous. All right, so let's take a look at that. So first of all, the prayer of confession is uh, thanking and praising God uh, for his greatness. You always start with God in your prayer time. Just don't, don't run in, 
This is what I want. This is what I need. You know, I mean, how much do you like it when people just call you when they need something from you, right? I mean, it is a relationship. And the social dictates and that we have for relationships here work with him because he's our father, right? And so we have to remember that we, we start out uh, with God. How did Jesus say to pray? He said, hallowed be thy name. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, just means your name is holy. And it just, you know, gives you a structure to begin time with God with just a thankful, praising attitude for his greatness and his holiness and all of his attributes and, and so on. And so we, we just see the start really of the gospel, the star of the gospel is the Savior, you know, uh, not about how lame we are, but how loving he is. And I think we get that now. And, and, and so now here in verses five through six, the greatness of God is just going to say, God, you know, it's all about you. It's not about us. You know, after all, you're the creator. You sustain all things by your wonderful power, you know? And so where would we be without you? So let's just get everything in order here. You are great. Your eternal name is mentioned. Uh, your, matchless, um, your matchless nature, uh, your supremacy, and your power, right? And then, he, and then he starts talking about, he says, and by the way, you made the stars and the earth and the oceans and everything in them. That's a marvel to start out a prayer recognizing even to yourself. I'm talking to the one who spoke and made the earth and the oceans and everything in the oceans of the whole world. He spoke them into being. That, that puts the posture of the soul just right uh, before the throne of God. So it's good to recognize before any prayer the greatness of God. And it's good to pray for your own soul, uh, those things that you already know. You know, I, we were out at the, the ocean the other day, Martin Luther King Day, and I got a picture of the, I just took a picture of the ocean. That's from my iPhone, you know? And uh, it looks like a painting. I didn't do anything to it. I just took a picture. Uh, but I'll tell you what, Oh, it's probably because I zoomed in. Anyway, there were so many people just staring. And why are they drawn to the grandeur and the awe of the oceans? Why did they just stand there holding their Starbucks and, you know, taking pictures? And what? They're just standing there like, you know, have you ever noticed that? It's like, what is everybody doing? They're just standing and gazing. Why? Because... God's eternal nature and his divine attributes are clearly seen through what his hands have made. And they don't even know, but they're being drawn in their hearts and souls to the, the wonder of the God who made it. They're just so close that they need to take one additional step. And that's why I'm there, to help them with that step. <laughs> But I didn't get any chances that day. But thank you for that. Well, we sense his greatness. And so it's just it's great to start a prayer with, wow, God, you spoke the world into being. And I'm about to bring you a big, big problem for you. You know, uh, I've got a problem with a friend. Oh, no. How are you ever going to fix that? Well, you already just said, God, you created the world and the seas and everything in them. So, um, we, we're moving on just be, be, uh, he They're saying, hey, look, I love this. They're saying, before we try to deal with our own guilt and talk about our problems and ways that we can feel better about ourselves, because that's the purpose of praying a prayer of confession is because you're uncomfortable and you want to feel better, right? So they just want to say, hey, before we get to the part where, you know, it's all about us and please make us feel better because we know we've sinned and we just want to feel your love again, Right? Instead, it's just, oh, you're so great and you're good. And it's from their hearts. It's true. You know? So it sets the tone for the longest prayer recorded in the Bible, which is the one you're looking at. It takes six minutes to read. Uh, uh, 
Did you ever notice that chapter 9 of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel are all long national prayers of confession? Chapter 9, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. So he starts with Abram. Abram means exalted father, right? But Abraham means father of a multitude. And so what the prayer is saying is, who are we? We started with nothing. We started from our progenitor. Our Jewish father is Abraham, who was Abram, who you changed into Abraham. That's saying a lot. That's saying, we know where we come from. We wouldn't be here without you, God. We owe everything to you. And that's in this restatement, starting with Abram uh, going to Canaan. I have a map of the journey from uh, so, so God finds this idol worshiper in, in, in southeast Iraq, Iraq, named Abram. And he says, hey, I want you to stop. He, the Holy Spirit talks to him. And the, the Lord sort of appears to him and says, hey, I want you to go to a place. I'm going to show you along the way. It's going to be a journey. Uh, but I want you to leave your, your idol worshiping family. And I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you that land, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. So he travels all the way up there, and when he gets there, you know, God does this work in him that gives him this land as a possession forever, and look at the thousands of years that have passed, and they're in the land. Those are his relatives. Those are his descendants. And so he arrives there. So God, we would be nobody and nothing without you. We were without... I mean, he couldn't even have kids. His wife couldn't have kids. So they're just saying, it all started with a miracle, and we owe you everything. We have nothing on our own, nothing to commend ourselves about. That's a good start to a prayer of true confession. We have, I have nothing to say on my, to commend myself, but everything to commend you. And by the way, let me just tell you, did you notice this land was called Canaan before? God changed the name to Israel and started halfway through the Old Testament referring to it as Israel, governed of God. Uh, when the angel appears in a dream to Joseph to tell him to take the young Jesus back in from Egypt to Israel, he calls it Israel, that's the name of the country. It's only in the Bible known as two names. Canaan, for the wicked uh, tenants of 10 different kind of people groups that you, you heard about there, all the ites. And Israel, that's it. Let me just show you a modern day picture of Israel. This is, I'm throwing this part in for free, as we usually do. This is Israel, all right? In the year 135, first century, just over the first century, a Roman emperor named Hadrian hated the Jews and wanted to really give it to them. So what he did was renamed this piece of land as Palestine. He named it, this is in your history books, he named it Palestine after, that is a Latinized version of Philistine. He wanted to take Israel's ancient enemies, the Philistines, and take away their name and put in, instead of Philistine, Palestine. That's where it comes from, all right? And so the people who lived there, if they were Arabic, they're not Palestinians because Palestine is a fake name. It's not a real name. It was given to them as sort of a jab, right? So there are only two ways to look at this piece of land. Well, what happened is, is 1948, when Israel got to be Israel, the Arabs who didn't want to assimilate into Israel said, well, we're Palestinians. Okay, you're Palestinians. So this is our land called Palestine. And they want all of this land too. They're kind of occupying there. They're, they're kind of in charge. You see everything when you go there. There's barriers and all kinds of things. So they're saying that they, that's their land. So I am digressing, but I saw, just saw, look, there's Canaan, there's Israel. He swore that land 
to Abraham and his descendants. They were offered to assimilate and make the whole place. By the way, the, the biblical boundaries of Israel are 10 times what Israel has right now. They're 10 times. You just go and say, he says, from this place to this river to this border, you just do it, you know, and it's about 10 times that size. So Israel's only occupying a little bit. There are 5 million square miles to Middle Eastern Arab countries, 5 million square miles, and 8,000 square miles of Israel. That's twice the size of Rhode Island, which doesn't help you very much. So let's, let's just tell you it's the Central Valley. It's Bakersville. It's Kern County. That's 8,000 square miles. So Bakersfield, for the Jews, 5 million square miles where displaced Arab people can go. Instead, they want to divide up what God called Israel, not Philistines call them Israel. Okay, I'm done. Didn't that clear it up a little bit? Nobody hates anybody. I'm not like saying, okay, people are bad or good. I'm just telling you, 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 you know, that's the history of it. There's no such thing as a Palestinian. It's a, that person is of Arab descent living on a piece of land that God gave Abraham. Sorry. All right. 9 through 15. I want you guys to know how to talk when somebody says something to you at Starbucks and you say, well, actually, my pastor said, um, 9 through 15. So the prayer goes on. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. So we're going to go through the history. It's just say, God, you've been good from, from Abram all the way to this day. Uh, you sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh. Yes, indeed against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. And boy, you made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You know, the, it's called the Ten Plagues. Uh, you divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day, you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. All right, let's pause there. So they praise God for his greatness in the prayer. So, so be tracking along because every day you've got something to confess. Every day, you and me, we have to bring confessions before the Lord. So these are, these are important concepts. You start with the greatness of God. Thank him for his compassion uh, and help now. And so uh, now the story unfolds, you know, the survey of Jewish history. And so uh, nothing like reflecting on the goodness of God to get your heart in the right place. You know, God, you've been really good uh, to me. And so... Of course, you will remember that when Abram got to the land of Canaan, God said, this is the land of Canaan, but give me 400 years with them. Uh, their sins haven't reached um, the judgment point yet. I, I want to work with these people for 400 years, and they're wicked. The, perhaps the most wicked people in the Bible were the Canaanites. He said, I'm going to give them 400 years. Abram, you, your descendants, 70 of them, are going to leave the promised land, Canaan, and go down, and they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Genesis 15. And then I'm going to bring them back. And so he, he, there, he started back. He, the prayer picks up at the point where the, where the 70 turn into 2 million in slave pits. The perfect incubation area to, to produce the Hebrews so that he can keep a line of salvation, a seed, 
from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so that Jesus could come through that people. It was a perfect idea there to protect them. I mean, it was very painful, of course. But anyway, so for 400 years, that's where the prayer picks up. He says, wow, you busted us out of Egypt uh, with, a, with a mighty hand. Verse 9, it's because of your tender heart, you know. He didn't just save them to save them. He, 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 it says he had a tender heart uh, toward them. And so verse 10, he performed miraculous wonders uh, on their behalf uh, and, uh, and all of that. I like verse 11. The Red Sea parted for us, right? But then the Egyptians, the wheels on the chariots, the Lord causes the wheels on the chariots of their pursuers to fall off so that they would be stuck in the middle have a parted sea. He gets his people through and the sea comes back upon them. A real picture of really crossing through death by the grace of God. He parts the waters for his people and anybody who wants to be his people. And those who try to cross through death without being in relationship with the living God uh, will be covered over and have to uh, pay those consequences. So they said the bad guys were drowned. Verse 12, they're just reliving the exodus and saying, look at how good you were to us, Lord. Clouds, uh, a cloud covered by day. You know how hot it gets in the desert with no shade. He was like a fog. He'd come over them by his spirit and and shelter them from the Mediterranean uh, heat of the day. And then at night, when the temperatures drop, he becomes everything they need. Shade during the day when it's hot. And then he uh, really gives them some heat in the evening. And all the while, guiding them wherever the cloud went, they went. And look at how smart God is, right? Uh, You know, they're under the cloud, and they're like, oh, wow. Praise the Lord, we're not getting sunstroke, right? right? And so when he wanted them to move, he moved the cloud. And they were like burning, right? And so they followed the cloud. And that is the reason and the impetus for them to follow the Lord was to not be in pain, which is a very good spiritual application. <laughs> he still does that, right? Follow me, follow me. Oh, I'm getting burned, I'm getting burned. Well, come on, come on over here. Right, so he gets us to do that. So, you know, so uh, the the list goes on. And so, verse uh, thirteen. And then you spoke to us. Come on, from heaven, God, the living God, telling us the way to live. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Who cares about getting out of Egypt if you don't have life? Since then, God spoke how to live how to be blessed, how to have radiance in your eyes and not be walking zombie, walking around. Have you gone down to the mall recently? Everybody just, oh, just walking around with no, no life, no countenance. But he said, you spoke to them life, words of life from heaven. And just so like a good father. So wrapping this section up, guide, you guided us like a good dad teaching us your way, the right way, protecting us, and feeding us. Verse 15, bread from heaven. They named it manna. In Hebrew, it means, what is it? Right? And so Jesus is going to say in John chapter 6, oh, by the way, that was a symbol of me. I'm the bread that comes down from heaven to give my life as, as for the life of the world. And, and by the way, with the bread from heaven and the rock that brings them water. You have communion. You have the rock that Moses was told, strike it and out from its side will bleed water that will be living water and will quench your thirst. So that's a beautiful picture. Jesus said, the bread of heaven, my flesh, me, the cross, the water from the rock, Jesus, the spear struck him. And what did John say? Outflowed water. That's a picture. This is the genius and the majesty of the word of God that no man could have ever told the story through and through with all of these pictures lining up so beautifully. There's no way. Right there, the majesty of the word of God is evidenced 
by things like the manna and the rock being struck and the water coming out and the cleansing and the quenching of the thirst. It's just unbelievable. So God, you're great. You're awesome. You've been a tender-hearted, loving father taking excellent care of us. Verse 16, the prayer goes on. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember Oh, willful amnesia, right? Oh, we can relate to that. Fail to remember the miracles you've performed among them. That's every time you get anxious about something, you, you're just forgetting the last time he bailed you out of something, you know? But it's willful. There's something really broken about us. <laughs> Fail to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader. So here's a couple evidences of what they did appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you're forgiving, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you didn't desert them. Even when they cast for themselves, evidence number two, an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies, I would think that was one of them right there. But there were more. Because of your great compassion, you didn't abandon them in the wilderness by day. The pillar of cloud didn't fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to, to, to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them. In the wilderness, they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet get fat, swollen, all right? They didn't get big, fat ankles, and that was a really important thing. So praise you, God, this prayer starts. Praise you, God, for your greatness, and thank you, God, for your goodness on on our behalf, on my behalf, if you're thinking about individually. And then, uh, now, sorry for our response, their response, Uh, We're no different from them, they're saying, you know, so uh, they can say their response or our response. So an unconscionable response is when you return for good, evil. You return evil for good. Somebody does something kind and wonderful and loving to you, and you come back with a across the face. That's the worst kind of sin. Biting the hand that feeds or just the, the sin of ingratitude is called the mother of all vices is ingratitude. And, and so this is really what's really going to hurt them and break their hearts is that in spite of the three paragraphs that we just listed of your phenomenal goodness, busting us out of slavery and, and speaking the living word to us, uh, they, we still rebelled. Proverbs 17, 15, or 13, verse 13 says, the one who returns evil for good will have trouble all the days of their life. What does that mean? It it means that if you're the kind of person who not even kindness shown you can get through to you, even when he lets you off the hook, or you're you're still mad, and you're still kind of... arrogantly going about your own way, even though you're being blessed, you're being blessed, you're being blessed, then that's the kind of life that can never pull the nose of the plane up. Because if kindness won't soften your heart, nothing will. There won't be a spanking if you won't do it with kindness. And so that's a terrible thing here, you know, uh, to respond to God after all of that. So... The terrible response there is, he lays out the character vices of the people. He says, number one, they became arrogant and proud. Uh, The word really is about being presumptuous. The word presumptuous, here's here's what happened to them. Uh, They just started to take God's grace for granted. So, you know, God's always going to come through. I can do what I want. You know, I sin and he forgives me because that's his job. 
right? And so you just kind of get a cavalier attitude. That's what they did. They got cocky. That's that what that word arrogant means. It's we're the chosen people. Who else did he bust out of slave pits and lead with a cloud of uh, cloud and a pillar of fire? That's us. And they hardened their hearts and just got cocky about it. The stiff neck remark there is uh, stubbornness. And it just means that they, they won't, you know how when you have a stiff neck, you don't want to turn. So the Lord's always saying, hey, right, go right. Hey, go left. And they're like, no, I can't move. I don't, I'm going straight. I'm doing my own thing. And so the two incidents now that are cited to just give you a feeling for how they bit the hand that fed them. Number one was, uh, they got a little thirsty, a little hungry, a little tired. So they said, you know what? We had it better in Egypt. You know, we remember the spices in the food when they served us in those pails. (laughs) You know, selective memory, okay? You know, they were in... (laughs) We remember the garlic, the onions, the leeks, and the melons, Oh, so delicious. Do you remember the whips too? <laughs> How about the, the parts where, you know, sleeping on the, in the mud and having a slave uh, master over you? Oh, my. And so, you know, that's the time where we're bored with this manna. All we get is this manna. All we get is manna. All we get is bread from heaven. We're tired of it. We want some meat. And so the Lord said, okay, Moses, I've got a plan. <laughs> And he blew some quail their way. And it was, it, the Bible says they were so sick of it, it was coming out of their noses. And God, God just has a way, you know. The second incident he quotes for the slap to God's face is after God pulls them out of the slave pits and marches them through and all the lists that we just said. Moses is taking a little bit of time up on the mountain and they said, where is that fellow? It's a pejorative term, by the way. It's, where is that guy? Where did he take off to? So, hey, who knows what happened to him? So uh, let's form our own God here, and, and we'll just do our own thing with our new God. So while Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments, they fashion a, 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 it's like a bull, a little calf bull, as they used to worship in, in Egypt, and, and a fertility it's a fertility thing, just so you know. It's about immorality. So they have a drunken, immoral party around the golden calf. And then they proclaim, Hear, O Israel, that's who brought you out of Egypt. And here's what the, the prayer is. And even then, you kept feeding their greedy little mouths and guiding their dirty little feet. And that's what he's saying there. He's saying, you still, even though with the blasphemy to say, hey, we threw off our gold earrings and put them in there. And even when Aaron is owning up to it, he has to own up to it in a weak sauce kind of way. He tells Moses, Moses says, what'd you do? And he goes, well, you know, people, everybody brought me their gold earrings and stuff. And I threw it in the fire and out popped this calf. (laughs) Right, and so there were a couple close calls with the total annihilation of the nation. Not going to lie. I mean, that is in there. God's saying, just step aside. I can start all over again. I'm God. That's what he told him. He said, I'll start a new people from you. I'll just do it right now. And Moses is being taught and drawn of the Holy Spirit to intercede. That's what God wanted to do in that moment. He didn't want to wipe them all out as much as he wanted Moses to learn how to pray like the intercessor he's a type of, Jesus, you see. So those are the two incidents. You kept greeting their, you kept, you kept guiding their feet. You kept water, giving them the, for their thirst. You kept tread on their sandals and you kept them from edema, swelling, you know, they, you kept your bo- their bodies fit. So moving on, 22 through 25. You gave them kingdoms and nations. So we're getting closer and closer. We're almost through the desert, right? Allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. 
They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. Those two guys uh, symbolize God's power and his work on Israel's behalf because you see those names all through the Old Testament. They become like a type of uh, monstrous bad guy that God just steamrolls over. Verse 23, you made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in that land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands. So now they're entering the land along with their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells were already dug for them, vineyards, orchards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. So praise you, God, for your greatness, and thank you, God, for your goodness and help along the way. And we're so sorry for our terrible response. And now, thank you for blessing us in spite of us, in spite of ourselves. So they acknowledge that God is treating them better than they deserve. I like how Dave Ramsey answers every caller when they say, how you doing? And he says, better than I deserve, right? I love that because that that is so true. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 10, he does not treat us the way that our sins deserve. So in spite of the bad behavior, God uh, still intervened. So the two incidents that are given are two hostile kings. And as I said, they become the poster children of the Old Testament, the poster child bad boys of the Old Testament because they're gigantic uh, these guys are like Goliath. Uh, let me show you the the map of um, the map of Israel. When it when the is when the Jews come up to go into the Promised Land, they come up this way from from down here. They come up through Jordan, and they come up along the Dead Sea. They come up halfway, and they go through they go through right about Jericho, wherever Jericho is. It's right about here. You'll go there with us. We'll go to the place where they crossed over uh, in Israel in May. So they come up here. And so um, I get both of them mixed up. So Og is the dude from Syria, South Syria. He comes down to stop them with his army. And then the other one, uh, Sihon, uh, he is a modern day, uh, he would be a Jordanian king. So Jordan and Syria, just their two armies mentioned there by those two guys, come down to try to prevent them. They're bigger, they're stronger, they have better technology, better warfare. Everything about them is huge. And little Israel coming up, little nomad Jews with all their stuff and their kids and their sheep and their chickens, right? And, and I, I think they, they have a few weapons, but not much. And God just says, watch out, stand back. I'll take care of this. I told you I'm getting you into that place. So it doesn't matter, those two kings that come down like that. And so he steamrolls over them. So, and it's all because of God's uh, favor. And then he make, he's making the point in the prayer that, and you could go back to the, the text there, uh, that the promised land for the Jews, when they got there, the, the Canaanites were more powerful than them, but God caused them... Uh, to lose and be defeated. So not only were they displaced, but then the promised land was turnkey, turnkey ready. He says, okay, you walk in, they're all ready. The land's cleared, the vineyards are planted, the wells are dug, the houses are built, and there's stuff in the cupboards. Go ahead in there. Well, now, liberal people get upset about that. Well, what about the Canaanites? Oh, God said in Genesis 15, I want 400 years to to work with them because their sin has not reached judgment point. He took four centuries with those evil people and they didn't turn. So he said, I've got new tenants. I'm going to evict you. 
that I'm going to bring in. But the thing that he said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4 is, you start acting like the old tenants who I evicted for this list, Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 has a whole list of those sins. He's saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't, don't do this. And we're reading it like, who would? Who would do those things? He, say, he says at the end, that's what the Canaanites did. And if you act like them, I'll kick you out It's just as fast. And they did. And he kicked them out. And now he's brought them back. So the prayer of confession is just to relive the truth. Confession to say as things really are. All right. I think we've got one more. Okay, where are we? 26 through 31. Oh, we just did it, right? Or did you just put that up there? It's a long prayer, people. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warred them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies, so you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them, and in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they did again uh, what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So this is a quick one. This is uh, just talking about the uh, crazy cycle. The crazy cycle is uh, they were blessed by God and then they became complacent and sinned and rebelled and did their own thing. So God had to chastise them with pain, right? And so in their pain, they suffer and cry out to him. He hears them and delivers them and then puts them in a good place. And then from the good place, they get complacent and they get a little careless and they start to play around with sin, and then they're worshiping things they shouldn't be worshiping, and so God brings the smack down. And then they cry, oh, God, save us, and we repent of our sins, and then God comes in, delivers them, and then you get it. It's a crazy cycle. Does it sound familiar? (laughs) I know. It does sound a little bit familiar. I call it crisis Christianity. It's the definition of every immature believer in the world. Christ is Christianity. I'm really good with God when he's blessing me, when I don't have problems, right? Uh, When I don't have problems, I'm not as fervent in prayer. I don't feel my desperate need for God. And so I start to go onto the edge, and then I play around with things I shouldn't play around with, and then I get spanked, and then I come back. You know, the cure to that? The cure to that is called consistent Christian living. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, learn to tell yourself no, pick up your cross daily. Every day, if you've got money in the bank today, if you've got food in your tummy and a roof over your head and and joy in your heart and a job to go to tomorrow morning, you are in such desperate need for Jesus as if all of those things were not true. You are still in desperate need, though your senses don't know it. So the key is for mature believers is to live with a constant awareness of our desperation for God and his grace. Last paragraph. And the first request. (laughs) Wow, that tells you something right there. Now, therefore, our God, they're wrapping up the prayer. The great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. They're going through some hard times still because they're occupied by Persia still, even though things are going good. Don't let all this hardship seem trifling to you. I mean, you know, 
we want you to see what we're going through, and, and it seemed important to you. <laughs> the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, our ancestors, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria <laughs> until today. In all that has happened, and here's, oh, so good theology and psychology. In all that's happened to us, all the bad stuff, all our suffering, you have remained righteous, you have acted faithfully, we have acted wickedly. That's the key sentence to the whole prayer. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors didn't follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you wanted them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land that you gave them, even though they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we're slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat of its fruit and the other good things it produces because of our sins. Its, abundance harv its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We're in great distress. In view of all of this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So what you have here is, as we wrap up the prayer, a plea for mercy. And really, it's the first request. And with a new beginning, they want to complete their renewal of vows. So the goal of every time you're confessing is to renew uh, a vow in your own heart, to walk right and to learn from the mistake that you're repenting from. So that's the thesis statement in verse there, 33 or so, wherever it says, uh, that God, you are right and we are wrong. Uh, I like Alan Redpath on this verse. He says, it's a tremendous moment in a Christian's life when he can honestly look up into the face of God and say, yes, Lord, you are right and I am wrong. And he stops arguing with God and drops his controversial justifying and whining and blaming. Lord, yes, I've got what I deserved in this situation, you're right, and I am wrong. I loved reading that because my very first prayer to God on the sidewalk outside of a bar when I got saved, my very first words, I looked up, I remember like it was yesterday, 36 years ago, I looked up and said, God, you're right, I'm wrong. That's exactly what I said, the first thing. I didn't even know what I was saying, uh, but I knew that much that God was right and that he was hunting me down and what I was doing uh, was wrong. Three very hard words to say. I was wrong. You know, husbands, look, just, just say it really fast. <laughs> if you say it really fast, it'll just come out and be over with, you know? But you can't say like, like it like this. I was wrong. That doesn't work because tone, she can hear it. Oh, she can hear tone where there is no tone. Right? So you gotta really fake it good. I mean, not, not fake it good, but you know, you gotta say, like, listen, I was wrong, you know. And and wives, come on. Sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and employees and all of that. I was wrong. God, you're right. And so the first request, and then it ends. I <laughs> just love it. We want to renew our vows. God, see, we're writing it all down here. We're writing it out, and we're going to put our, our, our little stamps on them and say, we, we the people, your people of Israel, just vow right now to just kind of learn from all of this and walk with you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. Signed there. It's cute, you know. It didn't last very long, but uh, it's a good effort, and still God is still working in their lives. Four steps in this prayer. My takeaway. Number one, a broken heart. God's been nothing but good to me, and that's how I treat him. So number one, you need a broken heart. Number two, you reflect on God's goodness. God's unfailing love toward you will always draw you in hope. Boy, if he loves me that much, maybe there's hope. I'm going to come back and try harder. So 
a broken heart and then reflect on God's goodness to you. Number three, recognize my own depravity. You just got to own it. It's terrible in there. It's ugly, all caps, ugly. Paul the Apostle said, apart from the Holy Spirit, I've got nothing good in there. Jeremiah said, your heart, my heart, desperately sick, beyond cure, who can know it? Ew, it's bad. But you can't go around thinking it isn't. Because if you know what you're capable of, should the Holy Spirit just not be applied? That'll keep you in the right place. All right? And number four, a renewal of obedience, of obedience to get to the place where you could say, Lord, I, I just had a season I haven't been praying. I've had a season I haven't been reading. I've had a season with a bad attitude. You know, let the Holy Spirit do like a radar search on your soul and your condition of your character and then renew your vows. I mean, after you reflect on the broken heart and the goodness of God and your own sinfulness, then, in God's grace, renew your vows. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. We look to you tonight, Lord, to touch our hearts and show us things that we might need to confess to you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.